0: So you got a couple of emails uh, this week. I first uh, sent out the PowerPoint accidentally, and Esty caught that, and then I sent out the handout, so you can follow uh, whichever one you want, and um, we have it here on the screen in the social hall, and uh, of course, uh, we have the printout as well. We are in James chapter one. We introduced it a couple of weeks ago in a... Um, Subject that I'm calling Wisdom Walks This Way. Then we looked at verses 2 through 11 last week. And then um, tonight we're going to begin at verse 12 and we're going to go down through the end of chapter 1. So the way to get started is we want to um, first have an introduction to this section that we're going to look at tonight. I think it helps to get a little bit of an overview of what uh, the paragraph is doing there is a connection almost that goes back to chapter one, verse two, that you could actually jump down to verse 12. I wanna try that. Uh, In verse two of chapter one, it says, uh, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Then if you jump down to verse 12, it's almost as if it picks up right there. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. But what's in between verse 2 and verse 12 is very important, and that is the subject matter of wisdom. And it tells us to um, call upon God specifically in times of trial. And I think where it's going is hopefully our trial does not become a temptation, now, you'll notice on the screen uh, that uh, there's a word that is used and translated here. We don't notice it in English as much, but it is um, the same word that is translated uh, for trial in verses 2 and 12, uh, as well as the word tempted. So in verse 13, it says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. So these are the same Greek word Uh and in one case it's translated trial. in the other case it's translated tempted. And I think the connection there or the inner relationship that you might see between it is uh, sometimes trials that we go through can turn into temptation. So there's an illustration that you see there on the screen. Um, maybe an individual has been given a very bad diagnosis, maybe even a terminal illness diagnosis, and it is a trial that they're going to have to go through. It is a trial, uh, not only of diagnosis, but perhaps treatment and all that type of thing. And in the midst of it, if things do not go well, if there's no hope, Uh, at the end of the tunnel, uh, then perhaps that trial can become a temptation because sometimes people can become bitter toward God. um, And as they become bitter toward God, um, then they lose hope. So sometimes trials can turn into temptations. And I think that's kind of what James is anticipating. He's anticipating possibly Uh, this group of people, whatever trials they are undergoing, again, this is early in the history of the uh, first century. Uh, James, as well as Galatians, um, are both uh, very early books. So perhaps James might be the very earliest book that we have in the New Testament. So whatever trials they are going through, is probably not the severity that you find toward 90 AD, toward 100 AD, when the Roman Empire begins to persecute uh, the church, and actually um, uh, martyrs are part of the church history. So whatever trials they are going through at this point, um, they are um, going through it, and perhaps they are beginning to feel a little weary by it. And so maybe these trials might turn into a temptation. And the question is asked, does God tempt us to sin? And here's where we pick up that there is a resounding negative no uh, in verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. So this is where this paragraph is going Uh, There's a little bit of logic that's attached to it as well. Why would God want us to sin? First of all, if his ultimate goal for us is to become mature, uh, to not be double-minded, not to be blown about by uh, winds of adversity, why would he tempt us? Um, Would God work across purposes with himself? And I think the answer to that is no, no. Uh, So James anticipates that, and God uh, is not out to tempt us, but God has this singular purpose of creating in us the maturity and character of the highest quality. So let me see if you have any questions, uh, as that is just kind of an introductory thought to get into uh, the rest of chapter one. How do you
1: um, correlate then the first corinthians 10
0: 13 this well, let's go back and read it so we can remind ourselves of it first corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 it says here um no temptation has seized you except what is common to man and god is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That's a great question. So is the faithfulness of God here the ability to get us through the temptation? Um, or is it suggesting that God is a part of the temptation process? I, don't, I do not sense that God has um, motivation behind it. Uh, it says in verse 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. It seems our commonality, our humanity, in at least as I see here, is part of the temptation process that we go through in life. And, and when we do meet up with temptation, the faithfulness of God is already there, um, and it, it almost as if God puts some guardrails on it. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. Uh, that might be different for all of us. I'm not sure exactly what our breaking point is, but maybe uh, what Paul is suggesting is keep perseverant. Uh, God is going to show up uh, before you break down. Uh, so that's kind of how I look at it. Uh, what, how do, what do you think about it?
1: Well, I, you know, I've always read that trials rather than tempt, tempted. You know, uh. we, we were always taught you, it could be trials. And my thought with that one was, I just wish he didn't think I could bear so much. Yeah. But, um, and, you know, he does provide a way out, but I'm, you know, this, uh, Hopefully people don't think he's doing the tempting.
0: Well, <laughs> you putting know, the
1: trials in your way,
0: that's where James is pretty clear. You know, in James chapter one, he's more straightforward with that particular subject matter. Uh, the Paul passage, I think probably has a lot to do with a lot of the troubles uh, that the Corinthian church is going through. Very divisive church. A church that has all kinds of issues, and it's not the external trials so much in the Corinthian church as it is the internal trials and uh, sinfulness and the inability to get along. So I think we might have to factor in the difference of context as well uh, between the two books. So yeah, anybody else want to weigh in on that? Okay, if not, then uh, I'm going to go on and we're going to kind of break this down um, a few verses at a time. So um, let's kind of start with verse 12. Now, it's interesting. Verse 12 begins with the word blessed, or some people pronounce it blessed. And um, that's a, um, it seems to be a kissing cousin to the Beatitudes. Uh, So This might even be kind of an adjunct beatitude to the teachings of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So the word here is Makarios. And when you hear the word blessed or blessed, sometimes the usual ideas that come to our mind are well, I'm fortunate, I'm lucky. Uh, I'm favored. I'm well off. But if you look at the Beatitudes, I would say that most of the Beatitudes do not really talk about uh, a state of luckiness or uh, fortunate, um, because a lot of the Beatitude talks about things that people who are on the margins are needing to uh, persevere through. And so um, there might then be kind of an assumption that the way you are blessed is a cause and effect relationship. That if you're obedient, then um, then God is going to bless you. If you're disobedient, uh, there's consequences to that. And you can turn to verses that state that as well. A man shall So uh, reap what he sows um, all the way back in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy seems to hold out that cause and effect relationship for the nation of Israel. However, here, I think it might mean something else. Um, When we observe people who are not that well off, maybe one of the temptations that we go through is to um, maybe make a judgment upon them. What did they do wrong or how stupid can they be? And usually there's elements of some type of uh, condemnation uh, upon people who are not in a blessed state. But I think if we went back and we looked at Jesus, James half brother, um, how he uses the word blessed in the the Beatitudes, maybe it might mean that no matter what a person is going through, it is not an indication that God has one forsaken you or God is opposing you. And so the way I put it here is maybe the word blessed is suggesting that God is on your side, even Uh, as we go through the severity of trials um, that is common to man. Um, Maybe these blessings are not so much an advantageous situation for us to pursue or to achieve or a set of hoops to jump through to get God's favor. Uh, I don't think it reveals some type of transactional relationship. Uh, where God says if you have enough faith I'll bless you if you have doubt I won't maybe the beatitude is this counterintuitive announcement of the kingdom of God that God's love is beside us no matter the circumstances and so why don't you try that definition of blessed on for a moment Um, what do you think of that do you think that helps or does that complicate things I guess it doesn't complicate anything, so I'll keep going. Uh, so, but I think it's something to be very careful of to somehow equate anything in terms of prosperity, good fortune, lucky, uh, those type of words to be associated with, oh, this is an indication of how much God favors you over other people. And I think That's important to keep in mind uh, because um, all of us will go through issues. That's assumed here in verse 12. Blessed is the man or woman who perseveres under trial. Um, There is a commonality in our experience here, and it does test us, as it says here, because when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So we're going to look at the back half of this verse in the next slide, but do you have any comments or questions before we do that? So on the back half of this verse is a a promise of a crown of life uh, for uh, those who will persevere to the end. Now, the question I have is what is this crown of life Um, is this some type of eternal reward that awaits us after we die or is it some type of uh, award achievement accomplishment that can be seen on this side of life uh what are your thoughts on that Well, maybe we go back to kind of the metaphor behind it. Crowns in the New Testament is, a, uh, is associated with athletics. So maybe a good way of putting it in our day and age would be, we just came through the Olympics, a gold medal rather than a crown. Uh, a crown is an association with a ruling a kingdom, that type of thing. Uh, Maybe what this idea is, is the idea of the dignity and honor that God places upon the neck of those who persevere to the end. So we think of bronze medal, silver medal and gold medal uh, in the Olympics. And in the race of life, uh, this becomes kind of a core image that as we cross the finish line, of our own life, maybe um, what awaits us is this idea of God's approval that we continue to persevere through all the trials, um, all the circumstances, and all the hurdles we had to jump. So this word that is used for crown here is used quite often um, uh, as it's related to uh athletics uh, paul uses the same imagery when he says i fought the good fight uh you know i persevere to the end that type of thing it's a very similar subject matter that's here so the other qualifier is now who are these who love him um is this a perfect kind of love is this a fanatical kind of love is this a sacrificial kind of love The answers to all those might be yes, but is that what's in mind here? Um, It says in verse 12, he will receive or she will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So maybe the love element here is more of a response, our our love responding to God's love. And that is because he, does not forsake us, as we just read in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, um, then maybe what we understand is that we can still still feel the love of God, even in the most severe trials. In fact, that love might be the only thing that gets us through that trial. And and maybe our love for God through thick and thin, through black and white, through um, all the bruises of life, then is an indicator of our heart. And it's an indicator that we love God and uh, we are responding to him. What is it that First John says? Um, uh, we love him because he first loved us. So there's kind of a response there to the love of God. Sometimes it's difficult to see it. Sometimes it's difficult to navigate it. Uh, but the crown of life, I think, is well done, good and faithful servant. That's a phrase Jesus uses. Um, it's the idea of you persevered, you hung in there, you continued to run the race. And uh, the image that comes to my mind um, is, you know, these Olympians that are, let's say, in a marathon or in a track and field event and um you know, they continue. And some of them, there's footage of those that barely, barely got across the finish line. And, uh, and yet they persevered and they drug their body across the finish line. And even some of the other athletes sometimes helped them get across it. Um, But they persevered to the end. And they did not give up the goal of going across that finish line. And that's something very commendable that uh, James is saying. You're persevering to the very end, God notices it, God rewards it. You have some thoughts on that? Okay, so in verses 13 through 15, if, um, if we are tempted and we see in verse 13, it doesn't say if, it says when, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So these three verses here, uh, 13, 14, and 15. Um, deals with the subject matter of temptation. Now, we know that temptation itself is not a sin. Jesus himself was tempted in the wilderness. Uh, You can read that in Matthew chapter 4. Each time he responds in strength, Um, Jesus is tempted to give up in the Garden of Gethsemane, and yet he finds strength to cross Uh, the line of his condemnation and hang on the cross. But how does God not being able to tempt human beings contribute logically to those who endure the trials that they are going through? That seems to kind of be at the heart of what James is trying to get at because down in verse 16 and 17, he will say, don't be deceived, dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Um, so, what is it that we see? How is God involved when we're in the middle of these trials? Um, and is the desired outcome from these trials um, to persevere? Or is the temptation to shift blame? Now, have you ever noticed, and I know I do this, um that when something goes wrong, we look for someone or something to blame, okay? It seems to be kind of a natural thing that we do. It's part of our humanity. Um, and sometimes other people are to blame for some things. But James tells us, don't shift the blame to God. Um, God might use trials, but he doesn't want to... Uh, tempt people to the point where they will enact evil actions. Uh, So logically, um, it falls apart to think that God is tempting us, or even that he delights in it, uh, that he enjoys seeing us squirm under the trials that we're going through. Um, Maybe a better understanding of how temptation works is in this word desire, epithemia is the uh, original language, Greek word, and it's a fascinating word. So you take a look here and James says, um, no one should say God's tempting me, but when we are tempted, what is going on here? So he says, uh, each one of us is tempted when by his own evil desire. Now that word desire there is fascinating. It's a fishing term. And it is the idea of being lured or baited into something. And it's the idea of how a fisherman will set the hook after a fish is deceived enough, enough by the lure or the bait And after that fish goes for it and bites on it, then the hook is set. So what James is saying here is um, evil is sort of like a master fisherman. And he selects just the right bait. Um, And it entices us. And after we are enticed by it, and after we take a bite of it, um, he sets the hook and he reels us in. And I think what that is probably referring to is when we take the bite, and of course, we could go all the way back to the imagery in the Garden of Eden, too, when Adam and Eve take the bite, Um, the, the idea is the consequences of it now begin to unfold, and there's no way sometimes to reverse those consequences at all. And so the idea of being set, that is the hook is set. Well, then the fish will, will try to fight to get off, but sometimes they can, but most of the time they can't. The hook is set, and so as the fisherman reels in or pulls in, in the case of the first century, I don't think they had rods and reels back in the first century, but when something is pulled in by a hook that is being set, then um there's consequences that are unavoidable. And that's kind of this, um, you know, idea that when we're in the midst of trial, uh, there is the temptation to blame someone else, or at times to blame God, then the hook sometimes is set because that hook is not set in the mouth, it's set in the heart. And it just continues to pull on us to the place where uh, we become hard in heart, even toward other people or God. And I think we all know people who have gone through so many trials in life that their heart is hardened and they become bitter toward other people. And in their bitterness, they can't trust other people. They cannot, um, you know, they can't love out of a pure kind of love. So I think what James is probably getting at here is the idea of this being dragged away as a consequence of taking the hook. Um, Then that deception leads to death. When that fish is taken out of the water, it's going to die. And so that death can become a metaphor of consequences that are irreversible. And that's where he goes in to verse 15, but the imagery changes in verse 15. It's interesting here um, that the imagery in verse 15 is not the imagery of fishing, it's the imagery of conception. So when sin is conceived, it's going to give birth, uh, when temptation rather is conceived, it's going to give birth to sin and it grows. Notice it says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown, gives birth to death. It's the idea of just like a birth of a baby, that baby doesn't stay small. That baby grows sometimes pretty quickly over a course of a few months. You go, oh, my goodness, this baby has doubled in weight. It's put on several inches in height, that type of thing. And that so the imagery has changed here from kind of a fishing term being dragged away to the idea of desire conceiving, giving birth to sin, and then it's just going to continue to grow. So thoughts there? Okay, that takes us to verse 16 then. So James says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Don't be deceived. Let's stop there for a moment. This phrase, don't be deceived, is used in a few other places in the New Testament. You can see the references, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and fifteen thirty three in Galatians 6, 7. Now, in all these uh, occurrences, um, sometimes deception, um, there, it comes as a result of misinformation or misapplication. So just bear with me for a second. Let's go back to that fishing uh, analogy. So if a fish could think, and if a fish could use wisdom, if a fish could see the underside of a boat on a lake, and sees bait swimming as the fisherman reels in the bait. Well, by wisdom, then that fish should know not to take the hook, not to take the bait. But there, a fish does not have that type of logic. So it just reacts. It's instinct. And so they take the bait and conso- consequently they get hooked. Now, Many times in the course of trial, we might have some misinformation or a lack of wisdom, because this goes back to verse five in the first chapter here. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. If we don't have the right wisdom or the right working knowledge of something, it's easier then to be deceived. And the crucial piece of information that James is getting at, at least at this point, is, well, that did not come from God. God is not the source of evil. Now, that's a long-standing discussion. What is the source of evil? Uh, It's a philosophical question um, that goes way back. But um, James is insistent that God is not the source of evil, but God is the source of good and he's not going to deviate from his goodness. Um, And so he is saying here, don't be deceived my dear brothers or sisters. Um, And if James can get the reader to grasp this, um, there's one less temptation for us. And that is God caused this. God is to be blamed for this. Uh, This is the struggle of the book of Job in many ways. Uh, It's the wrestling with where did this come from? Why did it come? And who is to blame? Job's three friends say he's to blame. Job is this close to blaming God and he wants to hold a court case um, with God to figure out if God is guilty. But um, the book ends by basically saying, well, these are things that are too deep for you to fully understand Job. And if you read chapter 38 through 40, you'll find that he uses creation as a way of explaining, hey, if you don't know how the created order works, how can you possibly understand how uh, the philosophical or metaphysical works? So, um, James here is telling us that um, deception goes way, way back. and in fact you can go all the way back to the garden in Genesis chapter three. and this imagery of the first couple uh, being deceived is to blame God for the situation and um, and to, Indict God that God is not good. He's withholding something from you. And because he's withholding something from you, you need to take the action into your own hands. And I think James is saying, don't be deceived by that. Don't be deceived by that. Thoughts there? So now in verses 17 and 18... We come to this declaration that tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So let's break this down a little bit. So James is insistent that God is good. And that goodness goes all the way back to creation itself. You'll notice here, it says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. That's creation language. Uh, So in Genesis chapter 1, the affirmation of the goodness of creation comes from the fact that God is good. And um, the psalmists, especially, if you want to do some devotional reading, you can look at those references. The psalmists, especially go back to creation to affirm the goodness of God. The creation reveals goodness in the way it was brought together. And it's an indicator of the character of God as well. And guess what word is used in the Old Testament? Tov. Remember that word? We used it in uh, our uh, Sunday morning series. So the idea here is God is wholly associated with goodness. And because he has been good since the beginning of creation, then you can be sure that he does not change. Um, every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of the Heavenly Lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. This idea of the Father of Lights um, is this idea of God, who, who loves light, not darkness. The shifting shadow is this idea of darkness, and that is a a, a very popular. Uh, contrast through the whole scripture, light versus darkness, especially in the gospel of John, you'll find it quite frequently. Um, So James is affirming God's creative goodness to bring the created order, Uh, but he continues to act upon that goodness. And now that brings up questions many times, I think, that we often ask. So a hurricane, a tornado, a tsunami, an earthquake, things like that, that sometimes come into the created experience of mankind, well, where is God? Um, And, you know, uh, I guess God does create uh, terrible things because he allowed this or he allowed that. And what James, I think, is insistent upon, without going into the way creation actually works, is that God is not behind tragedy. Um, And when there is tsunamis and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and fires, there might be some human contributing cause to some of those, but some of it is just the way the world is arranged, you know, the plates of the earth shift and different things like that, And, and mankind sometimes is the brunt of some of those seismic activities. But um, what we find, I think, is that James is insistent that God is up to doing good things, new things, things that are uh, wonderful. And he indicates that in the next comment that he says in verse 18, he, God, chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be kind of a first fruits of all he created so he's saying here well god gave to you a new way of looking at your life and looking at him and looking at the world and you are kind of the edge of a new creation that god is up to the old creation has its its downfalls it has its sin it has its evil. But God is up to doing a new creation. And of course, Paul will compliment that when he says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. So the way I put it in the last point there on your slide is God has chosen to give new birth to enhance a new creative order. He causes his people to grow, going back to the maturity theme here, so that they might be the best part of creation. So uh, in many ways, God's goodness is to be reflected in the goodness of people and the way we treat other people. And um, that's what Jesus will say makes you a light and salt in the world. Um, So how is it that we are perceiving God? And if we're perceiving God as a good God, then as we persevere through trials, we'll try to be good to other people as well. If we think God is evil, if we think that God is up to somehow making us miserable, our hearts as well might certainly be hard enough to make that the experience of other people through us. So thoughts there? So he chose to give us a new birth. Now, this is a parallel to verse 15. Go back to verse 15. Then after desire conceives, it gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death. It's back to the human development analogy. So this parallel here is God's not going to tempt us to sin because sin gives birth to death. But God gives birth so that we might have life. Now, how does this birth come about? It comes through the word of truth, it says here. Um, now, the big question is, what does James have in mind? Remember, there's no Bible at this point. Okay, so he's not talking about the Bible. But, um, my take on it is the word of truth comes from the one who claims to be the truth. That's Jesus. And so... I think what he's probably talking about is this idea of the word of truth that we experience through the teachings of Jesus can be then taken all the way back to creation when God uses this imagery of speaking into existence the created order. Remember John 1, 1 says, in the beginning, that's creation language, in the beginning, was the word, and the word was what? With God, and the word was God. So maybe what these connections are is the idea of the one who is the truth, Jesus, is the one who is the word that goes all the way back to the created order. And this imagery carries forward. The word of truth then comes through Two things, at least I think, in James' mind. The first one is creation. Um, what we find here is his references to creation, then parallels and complements what Paul says in Romans chapter one, when Paul tells us that um, that the created order reveals the glory of God. But the word of truth then is most ap- uh, applicable to Jesus, who claims to be the truth, and it is through his teaching. Uh, So this idea here um, of creation and new creation coming through the word of truth results in kind of a first fruits of what is to still come. So in the Old Testament, first fruits was offering to God a portion of the agricultural crop. That was first harvested. It was also the best of the harvest, usually. So, um, you know, if you have any type of, um, you know, fruit or vegetable, you have some of it that's good and some of it that's not so good. Um, And so, our front tree out in front of our house. This year had more apples on it than in the past four years. Some of them were really good. I mean, they were perfect. Some of them, eh, not so much. They had spots on them. And then some of them had some worms in them. So the idea of the first fruits that goes back to the Old Testament is giving God, not the, not the apples with the worms in them, <laughs> But giving God that that good, crisp, gala apple that not only looks good, but tastes good as well. So it's this idea of giving a portion back to God and giving God the very best. So here's how we might put it. God gives a new birth so that as he causes us to grow and mature, we might be the best part that should be part not past to be the best part of his creation and then we give all those actions back to God uh, as part of the the offering of love we give him our best time we give him our best treasures we give him our best uh, and we don't give him our leftovers but we try to give him the very best of our energy and our talents and whatever it may be so this idea of birth, again, is this idea of development. So we come into the faith, and we're like babies. Paul, again, will talk about how we're kind of like infants. And we grow over a course of time. And the things that we grow in are not only maturity, but wisdom. And not only wisdom, but in service to God as well. And hopefully. The more we have lived within the goodness of God, the more we want to give the goodness of our own heart back to God as well. And so it's this idea of development, and it takes time. And uh, we should not look down upon those who are not there yet. Just like we don't look down upon a one-year-old not being able to walk yet. It'll come. It'll come in time. And then they'll not only be able to walk, but then they'll be able to run. And then we're in real trouble, aren't we? Because they're going to get into things that we don't want them to get into. So that development imagery comes back here in verse 18. Have some thoughts? Okay, so in the 15 minutes or so that we have left, I want to take a look at the remaining Paragraph in chapter one. So I'm going to read it, and then you can kind of see how I've outlined it on the slide there. It says, My dear brothers, and always when you see brothers, assume there's a sister in there as well, okay? My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So the first part of chapter one deals with maturity. Uh, The second half is a concentration on activity. And that is, what does a maturing faith look like? So it involves hearing and doing the word of God. And now for us who have a canon of books that we look to, um, we can say it's the scriptures. Um, for those who do the word of God, there is this idea of being blessed, of an awareness that God's on our side and, and uh, he will not leave us. So James is going to transition from the subject of maturing in general to how it works itself out in relationship to specific issues, and he includes three of them that he will come back to later in the book, controlling the tongue, caring for those who are less fortunate, and how to deal with the cravings that come from within us. So we'll come back to these subjects because James is going to come back to them later in the book as well. But what we see here is the kind of overall introduction to this last half. And remember, this is all going together. When this scroll initially came out, there's no chapter divisions and there's no verse. So this is just one thing that continues to flow. But into this new section, he introduces it by talking about rejecting evil uh, by crowding it out with the implanted word that God gives. So we're told to reject all kinds of evil and vice and not to serve it, um, but to do that which brings life, not kills life. So what he is talking about is, first of all, slowing down in our reactions, He tells us here, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Maybe James is not referencing talking in general. Maybe what he's talking about is the type of um, talking that is energized by anger. Um, Some people love to talk. So, and that's fine. And, you know, we're not going to throw this in your face and say, hey, you should be quick to listen and slow to speak. It seems as though it's connected to this idea of anger. And that is, we have a natural tendency to speak out against other people quickly that comes either from our own anger or creates anger in the heart of the person who hears it. Um, You see that there's a couple of references there in Proverbs that you can look up. So maybe what we're talking about here is anger that boils up in our humanity, that does not produce what's right. Or remember, the word righteousness is kind of a religious word, but it really is associated with justice, doing what's right for other people, not necessarily right religiously, Um, is... Uh, The type of thing that produces schism and hatred. Um, Have you ever noticed, some of you who are journeymen in the church, that every church figures out a way to fight. Fight about something. Sometimes it's fighting about nothing. Um, But a lot of this is what's inside of us. The desire to be important, the desire to be in control, the desire to have a last say, um, whatever it may be. And it causes schism. It causes stupid reactions. um, It can even cause hatred at times between people. And, um, And James is just saying, hey, slow down and shut up. (laughs) slow down and shut up. So being doers of the implanted word involves uh, not just listening to that word, but acting upon it. So we know it's wrong to accuse other people. We know it's wrong to condemn other people. We know it's wrong to mistreat other people. It's wrong to misjudge, whatever but we act on it anyways. But when we hear this implanted word in our heart and in our mind, then it should should direct our actions. Take a look at verse 22. Don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. There it is again, don't deceive yourselves. That was in verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Don't deceive yourselves in verse 22, but do what it says. And then he uses another image. So James loves word pictures. Have you noticed this? Fishing. Now he's going to use the idea of a mirror. Looking in a mirror. We do it every day, don't we? (laughs) We get up, we brush our teeth, we look in the mirror, we get in the shower, we get out of the shower, we comb our hair, uh, whatever, put on our makeup, whatever it may be. And what James is saying is when we only hear words of truth, and again, the teachings of Jesus is at the heart of this, and we walk away and do our own thing, when we look away from what we know to be good and true, uh, we're like a guy that looks in the mirror, sees that he's got last night's supper still in his teeth, and his hair is disheveled. And uh, he has the five o'clock shadow, but he's not going to correct it. He's going to just turn and walk away forgetting what he looks like. But you know who never forgets what he looks like? You or me. When we see him, we go, what is that walking mess? You know, if why didn't he shave? Why didn't he brush his teeth? Why didn't he comb his hair? That type of thing. So this is actually a common image in the ancient world. Gazing into a mirror is the idea of looking for self-improvement. But what James is saying here is when you know the word, but you go ahead and do what you want to do, then you're like a guy that looks in the mirror and doesn't care. And they just go on out and they go to work or they go to the store or whatever it may be, and they don't care. they look like they don't care um how they appear to other people (laughs) i'm not going to record that (laughs) sd she had she was not slow to speak so (laughs) never mind (laughs) okay so there is a connection here between knowing doing and being blessed here. Uh, You'll notice the blessing is found in verse 25, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. So the blessing is freedom. Um, He's not forgetting what he's heard, but he continues to do it, and he will be blessed in what he does. Now, here we come back to that word blessed again. And I earlier said God is on your side. Um, I'm still going to hold to that definition here because I think another definition of it could quickly lead to prosperity theology. And that is you name it and you can claim it. Uh, And I don't think life really works that way. I think it is such that the blessing in what we do is having the freedom from guilt and shame and other things that might condemn us. We live with nothing weighing us down. Uh, Maybe that's what James has in mind. I don't know for sure, but it does seem as though part of the blessing of doing what we know, that is wisdom, is the freedom to walk without the heavy burdens that many people carry. So what do you think? Any thoughts? So let's come down to the last couple of verses then. Now we're introduced to the word religion. Fascinating. So this comes about pretty early in the um, first century here. James talks about being religious and he's talking about religion as an entity. And he talks about pure religion versus Um, versus something that has been corrupted. So he's saying pure religion is more than outward piety. So think about religion and all the rituals that go with religion. I don't care which religion you choose. You can choose Christianity. You can choose Buddhism. You can choose Hinduism. You can choose Islam. You can choose any of them. They all have their rituals. I don't know if if, I I don't care if it's praying five times a day uh, or offering up a perfect sacrifice or um, not eating leaven uh, in certain foods on high holy days in Judaism. There's rituals that all religions have. So it's easy to fool other people by keeping the outward form of religion, going through the rituals, holding to them, but it's not really pure and faultless. Uh, It takes no action like I've listed here, like controlling the tongue or caring for orphans and widows or being unstained by self-centered priorities um, that the world often has. pure religion is more than that outward piety it's it's pure in its motive it's pure in its desire to do what is right and to do what is good uh toward other people uh you'll notice on the slide here i mentioned people have been using religion for self-promotion self-interest and selfish profit uh since the inception of time um You can look at it and see it in the Old Testament. That's why the prophets constantly, constantly are talking about um, uh, things like justice, uh, having uh, balanced scales, um, giving, uh, uh, like we talked about before, first fruits, uh, spotless animals in the case of animal sacrifice, all that type of thing. Uh, not doing what we see in the life of Jesus when he went into the temple and uh, the money changers uh, are taking advantage of people to get rich through the ritual of offering up a sacrifice. Um, The ethical requirements of a pure religion, you'll notice here, is focused on the care of the community. Notice what it says here, look after orphans and widows, Uh, It's the idea of helping those who can't help themselves. Um, It's the idea of prioritizing the vulnerable, the groups of people that are taken advantage of, uh, the groups of people that are overlooked. Um, Pure religion, it says here, is a priority in the community, a community that can often exercise things like Power and privilege for their own um, self-interest and uh, promotion and uh, that type of thing. So he's going to come back to these things, but here he introduces it. And he talks about, don't be like the person that walks away from the mirror, but look deep into the mirror and let it control your tongue and let it control your heart. And let it look out for people who need your help and need your generosity. So it seems to me that one temptation of religion is what I want to call colonization. And what I mean by that, if you have a few more moments, I just want to kind of finish up tonight's study with this thought. Um, You're going to hear in a in a lot of religious circles nowadays uh, that people are deconstructing their faith. And what that means is basically the idea of being able to see through the sham of religion and what it does. Um, And in many ways, it's a way, and this is a very important line that I have in your notes here. It seeks a way out of simplicity Recognizing complexity while embracing perplexity through humility and honesty. I think that's the most important line I have in our study tonight. That is, how do you work out your faith? And you work it out by moving beyond simplicity. There comes a time where you got to give up your walker. You got to learn to walk. There comes a time when you gotta learn how to drive. And um, maturing is a part of moving beyond simplicity. Now that will bring some complexity and that takes some time to work through. And sometimes that perplexity will leave you perplexed. You will not have an answer for every question that you have. You just won't. But you in humility and honesty Try to continue to grasp these things, wrestle with them. Now, when religion becomes simplistic, it's this way only. And every religion has its components that insist that they are the only ones that are right. When religion does that, it becomes a colonial. And that is, we have the right way, and we insist that you do it our way. That's colonialism. Um, you know, in the history of humanity, there's been a lot of colonialism on the political level, level. Uh, one nation insisting on dominating other nations and doing it their way. Well, we can see it becomes destructive. Uh, and it, in many ways, there's a lot of people who have been hurt by the church because of this colonization type mindset. And often religion that is fused into we have the truth. When it is fused with colonialism, then everybody else's viewpoint is condemned. And words like heretic come out, you know, different things like that. But decolonizing religion is a journey back to the original wisdom of faith. And that is going back to that which get, sets aside the distractions um, and and beginning to really take to heart what the faith was designed to do, was designed to bring us closer to God, to find strength in the midst of trial. So here's my last slide. James says that pure religion is that which demonstrates the ability to love, even the unlovable. And often these are the people that are on the margins. So James believes that pure religion is is the way to bring some holistic healing to other people, not bring further harm or hurt or shame or guilt through legalism and all these other type of traffic. In other words, faith is a dynamic that's lived out in the reality of time. It's following the way of forgiveness and acceptance and peacemaking and being generous and loving and serving and those type of things. And here's the heart. Here's where it comes to. It means welcoming all people, regardless of gender and race and ethnicity, age, physical or mental capacity, education, sexual orientation, and even social, economic, or marital status. Pure religion just has this work of renewing and reconciling and redeeming. But it's a hard work because it involves sacrifice. It involves service. It involves all these type of things. But that, if that is the pure religion, then it can it, it can make our rituals meaningful. And that is why do we take communion well it reminds us that we're all a part of the of one body the body of Christ why do we worship why do we sing it's a, a chance for a community of people to worship God not just an individual expression so pure religion is embedding love in meaningful rituals whether it's prayer whether it's scripture reading whether it's meditation whether it's communion whether it's baptism whatever it may be that makes sense to everybody so it's always got to be embedded with love. And that's what makes religion pure. And that's what makes religion acceptable to God. Well, so that's, that's what I have for us tonight. you have some thoughts, questions uh, before we head our own, own way tonight? Anything else? If not, uh then uh what we're going to do is stop there and um as we uh, uh do so i want to wish you all a, a wonderful evening and uh looking forward to seeing you on the weekend and i uh, hope you're able to be with us this uh, sunday thanks larry thank you yeah. you're welcome
1: thank
0: you Yep, yeah, you bet
1: have
0: a great night everyone.